Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. The October surprise thus far, I think, is Bill Clinton deciding to dump on Obamacare. Did you think? No. No. It's quite incredible. What did he say? I'm joined this week by Helen Thompson, Glenn Rangwala, Aaron Rapport, and welcome back to Chris Brooke. Still mad about Obama winning in 2008. Or he doesn't want to win. Or he doesn't want to win. Oh, no. Last week, we were talking about American presidential politics and asking whether the old rules still apply. This week, we're going to be talking about something for which there are no old rules, there are no new rules, because it's never been done before, and that's Brexit. I think it's fair to say the politicians are literally making it up as they go along, because no one knows how you're meant to do this. We're speaking on Wednesday morning around my table in my office. Theresa May is going to give her big conference speech this afternoon, so we don't know what's going to be in it, though a lot of it has been trailed. But she gave a speech earlier this week on Sunday, at the start of the Tory party conference, in which she did lay out a vision for Brexit. And certainly that speech, I believe, was intended partly to make sure that Brexit didn't overwhelm the entire conference. She sent some fairly strong signals and she also tried out her new catchphrase. I think she likes catchphrases. Her new catchphrase is not just Brexit means Brexit, which is a lot of people's catchphrase, but Brexit means Brexit and we're going to make a success of it. And what I want to know is what success means in this context. What would count a success for her? or for the country, because it's, again, it's not really obvious to me at all. The strong signals that she sent have been primarily political, I think, in that she's given us a date for invoking Article 50, which will be before the end of March. We've had trailed this great repeal bill, which is going to undo the legislation that preceded Britain's entry into the EU, or the EEC as it was then, in the uh, 1970s, that paved the way for the incorporation of European law into UK law. But we've also had from her and from her Chancellor, Philip Hammond, strong signals that we should be prepared for economically choppy waters ahead. So Chris, if I can start with you, what do you think Theresa May would count as a successful Brexit? I think Theresa May would count as a successful Brexit any scenario where nothing obviously disastrous happens and the Conservative Party entrenches itself in its increasingly hegemonic position in contemporary British electoral politics. I don't think it makes much sense to talk about whether Brexit is a success in general. I think this is the purest kind of political fight where it will work for some people and it will not work for others. And we're becoming increasingly conscious of the number of groups who's from EU residents living and working in Britain to people in Northern Ireland concerned about the border to groups in places like Wales and Cornwall, who have been the recipients of EU funds, to Scotland in the context of the unsettled question of national independence. Brexit's going to play out very differently for different groups. I don't think we can talk about uh, it being a success, all things considered, really, however it plays out. But I think Mrs May has a clear goal in mind, and that's to hold the Conservative Party together and keep winning elections. So is that, hell? is that the test, nothing going wrong? Because there's also a question of whether the people who voted for it need to notice a difference in their lives. So there is one view, which I think is closer to Chris's view, which is actually a success is if they don't really notice a difference in their lives. There are symbolic political victories and there are signs that things have changed. 
but probably if they notice a difference in their lives, it would be because things have got economically worse. Or is there going to have to be a tangible sign for the people who voted for Brexit that it has delivered something for them? I think that this is a, a really complicated question that is not really possible at the moment to um, give an answer to. And I think one of the reasons why is is that we need to think about Brexit as essentially two different things, one of which is actually very straightforward. And I think it was quite striking the way that she embraced that in her speech. And I think in that context, the crucial line of the speech was when she said, the authority of EU law in Britain will end. That has got a great amount of historical resonance in this country for reasons that go back to the 16th century. In fact, you could argue for reasons that go back beyond that. And it's something that can be achieved. And she's set out a path by which that so, will so be So this achieved. is the great repeal. The great repeal. That's the, the symbolism the, the of that, which also has a deep historical yeah, resonance. Yeah, absolutely. It's tying certain important moments in British and English history together and tying it to this political moment. And I, I don't see there's any reason to think that that can't be made a success of because it's a question of transferring legal authority from one place to another place. The second thing that she was trying to do, and I think she was quite clear that she was trying to demarcate these two things out, is to say, well, what comes economically next? Once that has been achieved, or as that is being achieved, that would be a better way of putting it, what kind of trading relationship is the UK going to have with the rest of the EU. That she seemed to me to be treating as an unknown, something that has to be negotiated and something she said she's not going to provide running commentary on. Now, what the outcome of that is will depend on lots of things that go on outside this country, not least what's going on in France and Germany in their elections. But as Chris says, it's also going to produce quite intense distributional conflicts because there are going to be winners and losers from whatever that trade arrangement and then what the corollary of it is in terms of freedom of movement and I think in terms of the what the political consequences are not least for the Conservative Party and other parties is it's not at all clear to me at the moment how much she has to do more than contain the distributional conflicts and make sure that the losers are ones who aren't that much of a threat to the Conservative Party in terms of elections and that a part of the Leave vote will be satisfied simply by achieving the first. The only measure of success in democratic politics is winning elections. There are many reasons why the Conservative Party is likely to win the next election if in 2020, and they don't come down to Brexit in that sense. So in the intervening period between now and the next election, it falls to Theresa May in some ways to define what success amounts to in terms of British exit. So if it's a case of defining success in terms of repeal of laws, formal legal arrangements, if that's how it gets defined, then they're almost de- defining the terms of their own success. They're almost, they're almost, almost automatically able to breed their success by defining it in those terms. Which is incredible in politics, to be able to define the terms of your success so that you're guaranteed to meet it. Yes. It's a symptom of what's wrong with contemporary British politics. Well, part of this strikes me a bit as magical thinking and the danger for the conservatives is you saw this during the Leave campaign was I think they said expectations too high. One of my friends said the other day, I was like, well, we're going to get divorced, but we're going to keep the kids and we'll still have sex whenever we like to apologize for the crassness. And to suggest, right, that you'll still have access to the European market and things of this nature, but won't have to deal with the same regulations that the Norwegians or the Swiss put up with. It just isn't going to happen. And I don't think 
may necessarily believes that that will be the case, but she's putting herself in a dangerous spot by setting expectation levels high. The studies that I've seen, right, and I'm just speaking on the economics, you know, say, well, best case scenario is by 2030, you know, GDP has grown, you know, two percentage points less a year than what it would have had, had the UK remained in. So instead of tempering expectations, right, you've kind of created, again, this fantasy divorce world that uh, nobody actually gets to live in. I don't think that she has created actually inflated expectations about it because I think that what she's carefully done, and this is it actually goes back against some of what I said earlier where she demarcated these things out, is she said the most important thing is is that laws about immigration are made in this country again. Now that may have lots of economic consequences but that's where the symbolism can do some of the work for what the economic outcomes are. But is it enough for the laws to be made or does she have to deliver a target on immigration? So that's the, to go back to the original question, do people have to notice the difference but I think or do not, they just have to be told that a difference But is? I think that's what, the, that's what the unknown is, is we don't know and in, in the sense of because of the way that the EU works and because of the way in which the EU debates played out in this country and the way in which that has fed into what's happened with immigration in this country, these things all got fused together. So you could take, you could come from many different positions and have a problem from immigration in the EU into this country. You could actually not have a problem with the numbers coming, but you could have a problem about the fact it wasn't part of democratic politics in this country. And that's what I say. I don't think we can really yet unpack and know what would have to be achieved from May's point of view to satisfy those voters who were driven by immigration so, to vote leave. And is there a danger here that what Glenn described, which is essentially the Tory party can set the terms of this because the dynamics of opposition politics in this country because of where the Labour Party is at the moment, the old rules don't apply there in that the Tories are much more concerned about their internal differences than they are about what's happening on the other side of the House of Commons. Is there a danger of hubris in this context that Theresa May thinks that she can set the terms of this and that something's going to come and bite her, maybe not from the Labour benches, but from somewhere else? I think there's certainly an element of that. I mean, it's very striking that the Labour Party is substantially absent from the argument that's going on at the moment. Partly that's because it's Conservative Party conference week, and so the spotlight rightly falls on the governing party, but also the Labour Party is still in a deeply dysfunctional condition. But I think there's something else too, which is bound up with this story about being able to define success. And that's that although the Conservative Party is dealing with a horribly complicated issue where there's all kinds of scope for things going wrong and the ministers in the key jobs don't always inspire much by way of confidence, there's also a very interesting story going on about responsibility, which is that usually we think about how you know, politicians do things and then they're held accountable at the ballot box. But in this circumstance, with a referendum vote behind her, Theresa May is in a very good position to say, I'm doing what you've mandated us to do. I'm doing what you've asked us to do. Um, this old conservative slogan, trust the people, goes back to the 19th century. It's connected with Randolph Churchill and the career of Tory democracy and the world of Benjamin Disraeli in the aftermath of the Second Reform Act. And in addition to that... We're seeing government ministers openly explaining how if it goes wrong, it won't be their fault, it'll be other people's fault. David Davis was doing this just yesterday. And I think there is a extremely complicated politics of responsibility that we'll see. It's very difficult to say exactly who is to blame for what, who should be accountable for what. And I think that's also something which means that the Conservative Party may find ways to benefit politically or electorally, even if things really go quite badly because the number of different excuses they've got lined up is pretty impressive. 
and they've got a compliant media that will help to disseminate those excuses. I don't think excuses is necessarily the right term there. There are going to be many different factors that will be playing into the economic life of the country that will not be anything to do with the British exit from the European Union. It'll be very difficult to trace unambiguously any particular economic effect to that exit. It will necessarily be a point of contention. So any particular you know, upturn or downturn will in some ways be traced by some and contested by others to the exit. And that enables the election battle to be to be fought on the same terms as the referendum campaign, in that sense, about a, the same debate about who is right and who is wrong. You know, aside from the Labour Party getting its two pence in on this, which now is equivalent to like 1.6 pence, you also have the Scottish Nationalist Party, which may by default be the, the party opposing the Conservatives who are now setting the terms. So, uh, for example, uh, not Sturgeon herself, but one of uh, the Scottish Nationalist Party members said the other day that this could be a forum for shopping for neo-independence, uh, which basically is, well, Scotland stays in Great Britain, but gets much greater devolution of powers from London, right, from England, if it wants to avoid nasty debates about tridents and, and things of this nature, right? And Corbyn was a lackluster campaigner for Remain in any event. Forget about the problems that the Labour Party has within. So despite the small size of the SNP and its obviously regional appeal, it may become the default voice of the opposition. So I just want to pick up on two things that come out of that. So what Chris said, which is it's hard to have confidence in the people who are actually tasked with delivering whatever this thing is, Brexit. And I think that's true in that I don't think this is a partisan point, but David Davis and Liam Fox haven't had a great few weeks or months. But And Boris Johnson. OK, and Boris Johnson. I wondered if you were... That's why I was trying to catch your eye. Sorry, Amber Rudd. <laughs> uh, Amber Rudd. Theresa May's done OK. So the 19th century view of parliamentary politics that you were invoking there is that ministers who lose the confidence of the commons particularly can't survive. But we're describing a scenario here in which actually winning or losing the confidence of the commons is probably not the key test here. So we've got ministers tasked with something very difficult and they're not inspiring much confidence. And yet you're all painting a relatively rosy scenario for the Tory party in which not too much is going to go wrong because they don't face any opposition. And I just have a feeling something's got to give. Well, I think one of the things that's, that's interesting, again, about the way in which Theresa May positioned herself on Sunday was is th running through that speech was a, a critique of what happened to Westminster itself, to the British Parliament. And she was made, at various points, again, a demarcation between Parliament and the people. And what she, in some sense, was saying was the people have told Parliament that they haven't been doing their job properly. So she's kind of lined so up... So she's hired some incompetent ministers to show the people yeah. that they're right. And then she said, as I, this is where the problem then begins, that that, that bit works, and I think in, for the reasons, some of the reasons that Chris says, it, it has again, it has considerable historical resonance. And then when she moved on to the, the part about um, negotiations, about the trade arrangement, she said, then this becomes the responsibility of government and parliament. So the people have basically said to parliament, we don't approve of what you've been doing about these matters, and they've said to the government and parliament, oh, you can sort out what comes next. And quite then how this political dynamic plays itself out, I think, is unknown. And in circumstances in which the Labour Party was not so dysfunctional, I think we could reasonably expect it would cause a lot of problems for the Conservative Party. And it would cause a lot of problems, not least, because here's somebody trying to push this really quite radical position, 
with a small parliamentary majority and with a significant part of her party that simply doesn't sign up to this view of politics at all and British politics and with a, if you like, a leader in waiting in, in George Osborne. So you can see all kinds of ways in which it would turn out pretty badly for the Conservative Party. But I don't think you can stand back and say, well, it's going to turn out pretty badly for the Conservative Party without looking what else is going on. Because going back to the point that was made earlier, in the end, political power is determined by who wins elections in democratic politics. And it's very difficult to see the Labour Party is going to win the next general election. Just before we talk a bit more about when that election might happen, what Glenn said, that it's going to be very hard to unpick, if something goes wrong economically, unpick the cause. So is this Brexit that caused it, or is it some external shock, or is it the structural weakness that that the Tory party maybe even inherited from Labour and the crash? Helen, you know more about this than the rest of us. Is there a scenario in which there is a serious divergence between the fortunes of the British economy and the wider fortunes of the European Union? As you say, anything could happen. But is it likely, for instance, were there to be a significant external shock, there are ways in which it could look like our having left the European Union left us exposed? Or is it more likely that actually if something goes badly wrong economically for the global economy, most people think, thank God we're not in the EU? I think both cases are possible. And I think that the scenario in which it looks like Britain would have made a mistake would be one in which um, sterling comes under repeated pressure, not necessarily from Brexit and from its fallout, but from the general underlying exchange rate turbulence in the world um, at the moment. Any currency that's not the dollar has got the potential to slide significantly at the moment because of the way in which the dynamics of what central banks are playing themselves um, out. So if sterling is the one that has a repeated bout of weakness, then I think that will get blamed on Brexit, whether it's Brexit is to blame um, or not. The other scenario, though, is is one in which all the problems uh, in various Eurozone banking sectors come to the fore, particularly the problems with Deutsche Bank, not just actually Deutsche Bank in Germany, the German banks and the Italian banks. If that precipitates a, a more general Eurozone crisis, and it most certainly has the potential to, then there is going to be a lot of, thank God we're not in the European Union, because a Eurozone crisis is just a crisis on another scale than anything else we've seen during the course of this year. And on the point about depreciation of currencies, aside from the dollar, which people around the table saw me get very excited at the mention of greenbacks, um, you know, not only might it be blamed on Brexit, but it might be blamed on the Tories and specifically Theresa May. So what's being called her speech about a hard Brexit at the conference was also followed up by reports that, well, this led to the pound sterling falling to its three-year low against the euro and a one-year low against the dollar, which in this day and age is pretty impressive considering where it was a few months ago. And I will say this, the only thing worse than having a strong opposition that can point out the flaws in your policy might be having no coherent opposition at all. Because who do you pass the buck to or pass the pound to if there is no coherent opposition? Uh, Everything that goes wrong can easily be attributed to you because you're the only one in charge. And unlike if you're governing in a coalition or you're in a presidential system where you have different bases of authority for the legislature and the executive, right? It's like, well, it seems to be one likely culprit here. Whether that's fair or not, it's very easy to frame it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. That way in the press. So just to go back then to the question of electoral politics, which a lot of our discussions end up coming back to because that is how democracy works. Before we talk about whether there's any possibility that an election might happen before 2020, I did read someone saying what Aaron was talking about, that had a Labour chancellor got up and said some of the things that Philip Hammond said, both about breaching George Osborne's deficit targets, about the need for certain kinds of emergency measures, and the pound precipitately fell as a result, there would have been... I don't know what the word is I'm looking for here. Drawn and quartered, maybe. Yeah, can't, carnage. I mean, the, the, the press would have had a field day. And yet there was very little response to this. So this is strange, isn't it? I mean, I know it's, there is a difference, and the Labour Party would say there's always a difference between what happens when a Labour Chancellor says something and when a Tory Chancellor says something. But there is a kind of vacuum out there. It is. And more generally, we're also at one of those moments where it's quite hard to think that the press is doing an especially good job of covering these kinds of things. So, for example, just the other day, the press was trumpeting that Philip Hammond had announced he'd broken with George Osborne's austerity targets and so on. But George Osborne had broken with those targets in the immediate aftermath of Brexit. So we've got a world in which the press is picking up the spin that some presumably Tory press officers are putting on things fairly uncritically. And that's absolutely right. The government is getting the kind of free pass that it's inconceivable to imagine a Labour government getting. Particularly John McDonnell imagined. I mean, it's very hard to imagine John McDonnell giving a speech as Chancellor anyway. It's also completely different to the kind of reception in the press that John Major's government got. The story after the autumn of 1992 was repeatedly one of... uh, government incompetence, where the press was merciless. But John Major didn't deliver what the press wanted, which was Brexit. Mm -hmm. Uh, The debate was a little different in 1992. (laughs) Okay, that was... Does anyone here think there's going to be an election before 2020? He looks around the table, hoping someone will say yes. Perhaps the only context in which I can imagine it is if there is a significant division within the Conservative Party, when essentially May is no longer able to carry major votes in the Commons due to internal dissent on the Tory side. I think that's unlikely. There's no sign of it yet from muttering into into open dissent from significant parts of the Conservative Party. But, But one can imagine scenarios in which that does develop over the course of the next few years. But that's the only context in which I could imagine. I think that's probably right, which is to say that the next phase of the political conflict that is beginning to come into focus, but we still have no idea how people will line up, are going to be the parliamentary politics. And the announcement of the Great Repeal Act is, or the Great Repeal Bill, gives us a sense of what the first thing people can really fight about is going to be. And it's going to be interesting to see how the pro-European Conservative MPs treat that. And any parliamentary legislation will have to go to the House of Lords, where the government doesn't have a majority at all. And I think this is the phase of the conflict that's very hard to read, because anyone who is going to cause trouble then is going to be keeping a very low profile now. And May's majority is 
very thin. You don't have to have a big split in the Conservative Party, a big division in the Conservative Party, to make the parliamentary politics more or less unmanageable. And in general, May has signalled a desire to have this whole process driven by the executive. They're fighting the legal cases that would require a parliamentary vote. In general, Parliament is being sidelined, but quite soon there are going to be major parliamentary debates in which it's not entirely clear right now how the divisions are going to go. And if if the House of Commons does become unmanageable, I don't expect that it will, but if the House of Commons does become unmanageable, the temptation to call an election will become much stronger. So I've said this quite a lot on this podcast, but I think people don't appreciate the significance of the five-year fixed-term Parliament Act and how that's changed British politics for two reasons. First of all, it is something on which politicians can fall back in order to justify waiting. I think Theresa May wants to wait. I think other things being equal, she wants to let the Labour Party tear itself apart, which it will do over deselection. This is as good as it gets for a Corbyn premiership. It's not going to get any better. So she has something to fall back on. Chris raised his eyebrows at that. You, you said a Corbyn premiership. Ah, uh, you know. <laughs> <coughs> Whatever it is that he has. Uh, it's like the Premier League. I can never remember it. Yeah, leadership. We're going to come on to that in a second. Jeremy Corbyn brought to you by Barclays Bank. <laughs> and secondly, if I can get to my second point, if the Commons becomes unmanageable, then managing repealing the five-year fixed-term Parliament Act also becomes very difficult. And that's the reason why I don't think there's going to be an election before 2020. I just, it's easy, and people say, well, look, if they need to do it, they can do it. But the circumstances in which they want to do it, that is, problems inside the Conservative Party, are the circumstances in which it becomes harder. I want to talk about a couple of other things to broaden it out again from British politics, because things happen overnight. Every time we do this, things happen overnight. So we're not going to talk about the fact that UKIP lost its leader overnight. We'll do that some other week. I think that's uh, another aspect of British politics we need to come back to. There was a vice presidential debate overnight, and we will come to that in a second. But just to go back to Trump, since we talked last week, we talked about the debate It turns out it was a disaster, probably. I mean, we'll have to see what happens in November, but he's had a bad week. The debate performance in itself may not have been the single cause, but it opened the door to a whole series of questions that came out of some of his answers, including about his tax returns, about his sexes and so on. He's unquestionably on on the defensive this week, and the polls have moved against him. Just to tie it into Brexit one more time, and maybe we won't do this again, but Trump in the middle of the summer, called himself Mr. Brexit. And by that, he was signalling both his approval of what happened, we think, although he seemed a bit confused about it, but also essentially that he, like the Brexit vote, was going to show that the polling wasn't to be trusted. And there is still, you can sense it, in this country particularly because we've been through it, this lingering suspicion that though the old rules do seem to be holding, he had a bad debate, it was a bad week for him. He's been on the defensive. Hillary has moved ahead in most of the key states. Brexit shows that it's never over till it's over. Now, I just don't know on this question, but there's a little part of me that thinks, yeah, he still could be Mr. Brexit. And that fits into the narrative of the declining trust in claims to expertise. And in this case, polling is one of those purported fields of knowledge which has been heavily taken over by certain organisations and certain individuals to pronounce on behalf of what they think is the most likely outcome of elections. It's not just a British and American phenomenon, of course. We've seen polling for elections in from Israel to Canada to Turkey, all making incorrect judgments about the likely effect of the election. But the key question is, is there a pattern to the ways in which they're wrong? So is there a pattern that the thing that they're calling wrong is people's really fundamental dissatisfaction with 
the old way of doing things. I mean, is that consistent or is it just that the pollsters still haven't really worked out how to find out how people are going to vote? You could argue that there's been a pattern in the sense that what seems to be the consensus pragmatic, reasonable option is being rejected at the ballot box, even when it's being supported in the polls. So mentioning Israel, right, Netanyahu was seen as the harder, less reasonable leader, one, Brexit was seen as the more irresponsible, economically speaking, policy. Brexit won. Trump certainly would be seen by uh, liberal elitist eggheads like myself as being the less responsible option. And it remains to be seen what will happen there. Now, the polling aggregators that you see working on this in the United States right now have uh, anywhere from a 65% estimate to a around 87% estimate that Clinton will win. But again, these are all based on models, which are based on theory of who a likely voter is and what the major factors that people take into account when they're actually entering their votes, what they are voting based on. And a lot of this says, well, economics is what people vote on. And people say, well, that's one reason why Brexit won't happen, right, is economics. Or that's another reason why Scottish independence won't happen is because the economic cost. Well, as, well as it didn't, people, but yeah. As, as, yeah, it didn't. But right, it was it was a you know close thing. And people are starting to realize, and by people, I mean, maybe experts, well, our model of somebody as a rational, calculating, self-interested person that mainly looks at dollars and cents or pounds and pence, that might be a little off. And it's hard not to be superstitious because, as you say, 87%, you see these numbers, you think, yeah, I've seen that number before. Yeah, that was the percentage that was put on the chances of us remaining in the EU. So I want to bring in one other vote because it happened this week, and it was the most striking of all of these. The vote in Colombia, it was a referendum whether or not for the Colombian people to endorse the peace deal that had been agreed by their government and the FARC rebel movement. It was one of those cases, they're very rare, in which I read a newspaper, The Times, which published an editorial in its print edition on the assumption, because the polling was so overwhelming, that the Colombian people would endorse it. And it appeared in print after the Colombian people had rejected it. It's a bit like the famous 1948 headline, uh, Dewey Beats Truman, that the Chicago Tribune, I think, is that right? I, I, I think that's right. Uribe Beats Santos would be, I think, the, the title here. Right. So it's, it's very rare to be so out. And the polling had a kind of 66-33 margin. Now, maybe these things are completely unconnected. And um, it's always a bit dangerous to go from Colombian politics to Brexit to Trump. But it does fit the pattern that you just described. The New York Times said the Colombian people were offered a choice between peace and justice, and they chose justice. Well, that's a quite a sort of elevated way of dressing it up. Justice here meaning do not let off the people who have been fighting a civil war. We need to punish them. But the other way you could put it is it was pragmatism versus dogmatism. And my sense is that dogmatism on the whole is outperforming the polls. I think there is a way of looking at it like that, but I also think we need to be pretty careful about moving between making comparisons between what happens in referendums and what happens in um, essentially in legislative or executive elections, as in the um, United States. And to go back to the Brexit-Trump comparison for a moment, you know, there is a world of difference between voting for Brexit and voting for President Trump. I mean, in the sense that the psychology that's required in order to say, actually, I think it would be better for Britain to leave the European Union is very different than the psychology that says that I think it's OK for someone with the temperament of Donald Trump, whatever one thinks about his opinions on any number of things, and whether one agrees with them or disagrees with them, to be president. And so I think that when you ask direct questions like Brexit or in the, in the Colombia referendum, people can sort of get deeper into questions of identity 
when they vote than they can when they ask to vote for somebody to be their representative or party or a person to be their representative. So if you ask voters in Colombia to think about what value they put on war versus justice, then I think you're going to get a very different question than if you said you had to elect somebody who represented the justice position and say, OK, I want that person to be leader of Colombia. That just gets us into a completely different ball game. And I think the problem with the referendum is, is, is that the pollsters, I don't think, are adjusting their models as the way Aaron was describing them to the fact that a different psychology is on offer to voters in referendums than in legislative and executive elections. A slightly different take on the the pragmatism versus dogmatism theme. It, it's notable that in the Colombian referendum, it's those regions of the country that were most heavily affected by the conflict, most heavily affected by the prolonged war, which were most in favour of the peace deal. While those parts of the countries that had not experienced prolonged violence within those regions voted against. Now that's an interesting switch in which those who whose lives are most heavily affected by the outcome of the vote, of the referendum in this case, are those who are inclined towards pragmatic deals in which which nobody recognises. Yeah, and that is striking because you could imagine it being the other way and that if you're going to be punitive, it's because you've experienced it. But it also kind of echoes the, the observation that many people have made that in the areas where there is most immigration, that's where people are least anxious about it. It's in the areas where there's been less immigration, where they're more anxious about it. One final thing, because it was the vice presidential debate last night, and I I don't imagine it's going to make a huge amount of difference. So it was pretty interesting. Um, I think it showed that Donald Trump showed that you can be underprepared and Tim Kaine showed that you can be overprepared or at least overcaffeinated or something because he was very keen. (laughs) And as someone said, Mike Pence looked like someone who was struggling with his discomfort with being Donald Trump's running mate, but he was doing a pretty good job of easing himself into a zone where he was okay with it. Tim Kaine looked very excited to be Hillary Clinton's running mate. It's not going to make a difference unless you believe, like one commentator I saw this morning said, and I don't believe this, that given that either Trump or Clinton will certainly be impeached if they win this election, we were seeing a debate between the two next presidents, but one, one or other of them. But I just want to say, I want to give you one line from the debate, because Kane clearly prepared a lot of his lines. He was It was a very soundbitey performance. Both these lines must have been prepared in advance. I think one of them was a good line, and one of them was a terrible line. The good line, and this was about Trump um, and Trump's attitude to foreign policy, and particularly to unsavory leaders around the world. The good line, I thought, and you can dispute this, you might think this is a terrible line. The good line was he has his own personal Mount Rushmore, Vladimir Putin, Gaddafi, Kim Jong-un, that seemed to me a pretty effective line. The really terrible line, which came quite close to that one, was if Donald Trump doesn't know the difference between dictatorship and leadership, he needs to go to the back of the fifth grade civics class. And that to me embodies everything that's wrong with the Clinton campaign. If they think that this election is a lesson in civics, they're going to lose. And the thing that astonished me, maybe they're not going to lose, but it's just that so confirms what people do not like about, we can call it the pragmatic option, but it's also the snotty, elitist, intellectualist, intelligence surge option. And to call it first a civics lesson, secondly, fifth grade, thirdly, back to the class. And yet someone wrote that line for him. And when I read that, and when I heard him say it, I found it jaw-dropping. I agree. And I think the the corollary of that is is that Pence's best moment in the debate was when he took Clinton on via Kane about her basket of deplorable slime. And basically 
turned round what had is a clear Trump weakness about his willingness to insult any number of Americans and turned it into a tried to turn it into a bigger problem for Hillary in terms of her willingness to insult Americans. So he essentially said that there was you, even if everything that um, Kane had said that Trump said that he was disputing was true that it wouldn't be anywhere near as insulting as Hillary's remark about a basket of deplorables and I think that was effective and in it kind of had the same effect as the line from Kane that um, you're discussing and what it showed was is, is that there is a line of attack that Trump can take that turns some of his liabilities and tries to turn those into, into Clinton liabilities. And so I think the, the one thing that comes out of it, whether Trump's got the capacity to take this on board is, a, is an entirely um, different question, is, is that Pence showed how Trump should be attacking Clinton in the next debate. Another possibility here, though, is, again, if most people have their preferences set, more or less, for who they're going to vote for at this point, then your goal isn't really to try to persuade people, certainly not on the other side, but maybe not even in the middle. Your goal is to simply rally your own base and get them to turn out to vote. So when Clinton made her comment about the basket of deplorables, yes, there are a lot of people saying, well, that's really offensive to people who are voting for Trump or considering voting for Trump. But I saw a lot of people who had been basically chomping at the bit for Clinton to say something like this. And when she did, they said, finally, Right. And this was proving her credentials in some way to some people. So that's another possibility here is that you're saying something that if you presume debates are about persuading people, yes, would be stupid. If you're presuming that it's just about hanging out red meat for your own choir, that's a weird metaphor, then it's not such a terrible strategy. But I still refuse to believe anyone was chomping at the bit to be told this was a fifth grade civics lesson. We'll know next week whether Donald Trump is capable of learning these lessons, as Helen said. He spent uh, the debate, the vice presidential debate, tweeting, so he may have been watching or he may not have been paying attention. We'll find out. The second debate, a town hall debate, will be happening on Sunday. Please join us again next week. We'll be discussing that. We'll be discussing a lot else as well. Do subscribe to this podcast. Please do rate us on iTunes if you've enjoyed us. Thank you for listening. My name is David Runciman, and we have been Talking Politics. Should I be the evil American more? Should I make more, take more shots against the pound? Yeah, the I think so. Yeah, and Pence had his equivalent of um, Bush's shrug, which was just a little sort of, there he is again. There you go again. Yeah. The thing is, his pencil looks more alpha male than Kane. Kane looked needy. He did yeah. look needy. Yeah. But I noticed that America's stepdad. <laughs> yeah. I was aware there was an element of hypocrisy. <laughs> I'll leave that for the listeners. Do the math. Um, Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.